Hello out there. Welcome to episode 130 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode was supposed to have come out at the end of December 2019. Here we are in January 2020. A whole bunch of personal life things sort of got in the way of me recording. Thanks very much for your patience. Plus, I'd also like to say a big thank you to anyone who got in contact with me through Facebook Messenger or just posted on my page to find out what the hell was going on in this part of the world with all the bush fires going on. It's been pretty tragic, very heartbreaking for us, but a lot has been said in the media. I'm not going to make this episode a forum for that, but just wanted to say a huge thanks to anyone out there who reached out. Also, I want to give a huge thanks to the good folk at Pantheon Podcasts. They've taken on Love That Album for the last couple of episodes, and I'm really super appreciative of their support. I was going to be taking off a bit more time than what I am, but they were very, very supportive and saying, take as much time as you need. But here we are, and I just sort of felt, nope, I'm ready to go and record an episode. It's very therapeutic, very cathartic to uh, be recording this podcast for you. Really, really enjoy doing it. So I'd like to welcome to the microphone my wonderful son, Max Bishtinsky. Hello. And we're going to be talking about our favorite albums, or just albums that we dug from 2019. Welcome back, Max. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Last we had of you on the show was, I think, about October when we were speaking about the magnificent album by Cardiacs, Sing to God. That's right, that's right, classic. A wonderful uh, introduction. You've introduced me to a lot of wonderful music over these last few years. That used to be my job. <laughs> now you're doing it, but uh, I'm truly grateful. So I'll be very interested to see what albums you have to recommend in... Uh this episode from uh, 2019 that you dug. Normally, the rule here is it's not about albums of that particular year. It's just about albums that we heard for the first time in that particular year. But I think that you mentioned that all your albums are 2019. Yeah, as has been the thing every time I've appeared on one of these end of year shows, I did limit myself to stuff that was released within 2019. Apart from one of my honourable mentions or all my albums are from 2019 and even that honorable mention is a re-release that came out in 2019 so there you go despite all the shitty happenings of 2019 i like to think it was a very very good year for new music and let's hope that continues into 2020 what we're going to do is have a quick break joanne will give you the contact details and after we get back we'll start digging into the albums that really excited us over 2019. Absolutely. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 130 with Morris over here and Max over there. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm... We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes of Love That Album at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 130 of Love That Album Podcast. 
we're here to talk about our favourite albums of 2019. Morris over here, Max over there. I'd like to uh, have you start, Max. What's uh, the first album on your list? Okay, so the first album from my list was an early release. I believe it came out around February, March of 2019. It's the album 2020 by Shin God. This is an album that could be described as progressive screamo or scrams or what have you, but I sort of think that might be a bit uncharitable and not give you the full picture because while this album definitely features a lot of the recognizable hallmarks of the scrams revival, like the intense unchained vocals and the loose emotive instrumentation and its obvious homage to its hardcore roots. It is quite uniquely experimental within these forms, so rather than some of the predictable rhythms and melodies you might have grown accustomed to, this album really throws some super inventive curveballs. In this sense, you could maybe compare them a little bit to bands from the early to mid-2000s like Gospel or Circle Takes a Square, who sort of threw in those progressive or avant-garde elements into uh, the Scramsy style. But I really think Shingard have pretty much mastered doing their own thing. The album in question 2020, it's an album with a lot of axes to grind. It's a thoroughly political album. It's an album with a lot to say about the scene in which it was birthed. It's an album with a lot of dealings with personal struggles. One example I'd like to talk about is the song 2007, which is, I think, probably my favorite track. It's hard to say that, but it is a fantastic track. The song is an absolute rejection of the sort of casual transphobic language and attitudes that you often hear espoused by people who might say that they don't know any better. It's vicious, but it's really enrapturing, and it's obviously written from a place of real experience. So you say that this album is very political, and could this album have been recorded, do you think, at any other time? Is it very much birthed of its time? Some of the themes it deals with are not exactly new ones. As I said, transphobia and transphobic attitudes, unfortunately, have a very long history, and some of the other themes dealt with on the album aren't exactly themes that are specifically of this precise day and age, like the closing track, You Will Be Held Accountable For Your Actions, addresses predatory behavior within the hardcore scene, but it does take time to address specifically contemporary troubles that we face, the Trump presidency being an obvious one. This album is invigorated by a sort of both very contemporary but very timeless anger and frustration at the uh, system and the powers that be mm. and all the attitudes in place that allow those powers to stay as they are. I know that it's often said that horrible political times often give rise to great art and great music. It's horrible that we have to suffer through them, but it sounds like these guys have definitely gone and put together something that great music and cathartic and born of its time, so the flower 
that grows out of the dirt. Yeah, the underground screamo and scrams scene is no stranger to radical political themes within its music. That's been a staple of the sound since probably Orchid released Dance Tonight, Revolution Tomorrow, all the way back in, I can't even remember, but that was late 90s, early 2000s, I think. It's also notable that Shingard put out a very good split with another band called For Your Health, uh, which I would also highly recommend. Is that a split 7-inch or an album? It's basically a split EP, about three or four each. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And is that available like on Bandcamp or something? Yep, it's all available on Bandcamp. You can listen to it on Spotify or streaming methods of your choice. You can buy these physically on record or CD. Yeah, definitely, I'd say support the band if you like what you hear. The band is Shingard, and the Shingard. name of the album is... 2020. Okay, so my first album, and I should actually say at this time that we've basically limited ourselves each to four albums. We'll also be listing some honourable mentions at the end, but four albums that we'll speak about in some detail. It's a toughie. Mm. So my first release that I want to discuss is one that I will confess I have a very, very slight connection to in that I went and put some money in through a possible campaign, but it's just because it's something that I really, really believed in. So back in 2000, a local guy, Scott Thurling, went and put together a terrific record label called Pop Boomerang. I'd had a chance to briefly speak with Scott in his capacity as label manager when I tried to get an interview. Well, I did get an interview a few years back for the podcast with a songwriter called Van Walker who was at the time running his really terrific band, The Livingston Daisies. I can't remember what episode that is, but go check that out and listen to The Livingston Daisies. It's just absolutely glorious melodic pop. He's had some really terrific acts on the Pop Boomerang label over the years. From the name, you might sort of think that it's only a power pop label. And I think I even made that mistake in a discussion with Scott and he went and rattled off a whole bunch of artists who said, well, that's not power pop, that's not power pop. Just a name, but he does have a lot of power pop on the label. So some other great acts like the aerial maps which is i guess sort of more rootsy music with poetry and spoken word from a fellow called adam gibson there's a band called four hours sleep which has a core group sort of a super group with a rotating series of guest singers like stephen cummings and angie hart and david mccomb so it's going back a fair way and i think he even went and released an album from local band skipping girl vinegar who are really mm-hmm. really terrific folk rock band you couldn't have a band called that in anywhere else no well skipping Girl Vinegar, very, very Melbourne. If you live in Melbourne, you know why. If you don't, go look it up. So Scott has gone and released a bunch of anthologies over the years, as well as regular albums from his artists. And the beauty of it is, is that a lot of these anthologies are not necessarily always featuring pop boomerang signed artists, but there are just so many local artists who love his vision and love the sort of music that he puts out and just respect that he's so passionate about local acts that they go and record a 
songs specially for him for the label. And the latest in this series of anthologies is called Shake Your Pop Boomerang Volume 3. A lot of very up-tempo stuff and just some really great artists. And what I loved about this is there's a combination of artists who I'm very familiar with and a lot that I wasn't. So I learned some stuff and got some new tracks from artists that I really, really dug. So just want to mention a few of the songs on the album that so by way of introduction to you for those of you who may not have heard the album yet and i really highly recommend this anthology and really would highly recommend anything from the label so three artists i want to mention specifically that i was already familiar with there's a track from even called the memory even have always been one of those bands that you just sort of wonder why aren't they the biggest thing in the country. Ash Naylor, who's the lead guitarist and songwriter for the band, is probably one of the hardest working men in Australian rock music. He's been, for the last few years, a member of the Rock Whiz Orchestra. He's played for a few years with Paul Kelly. He's got a band, I think, called The Marshmallow Overcoat or something like that. But even is his main gig, which he's been doing for... Uh, I don't know, 25, 30 years or something like mm-hmm. that. Every album that they've made has always been wonderful. My favourite is their second album called Come Again, and we're going to be covering that on the podcast later on this year. Oh, sorry, another favourite act that he's associated with, he plays with Sherry Rich, local country singer. The Grapes. The Grapes. We spoke with Sherry Rich on the podcast a few years ago about the second Grapes album. I think it was like 20 years between albums, so please go search that one out. Even are a fantastic band. I always sort of associate them with UMI. I think they pretty much started at a very, very similar time. If you're a fan of one, you'd be a fan of the other. The song on this album, The Memory, is another one of those magnificently crafted guitar pop songs that we just know Ash for. So was this recorded specifically for this compilation? Well, sort of. It wasn't specifically done with this album in mind, but it was released like as only 50 pressings on a 7-inch single. So it went straight from that to being more broadly available on the Shake Your Pop Boomerang compilation. If you're one of those lucky people who managed to get yourself a copy of the 7-inch, treasure it, but probably go out and get this anthology so you don't have to worry about scratching your lovely record up. The next song I want to bring to your attention is from a Sydney band called Loose Pill. The song's called City of Thieves. I first discovered Loose Pills when Mighty Mick Beatty at Off The Hit Records here in Melbourne basically put a copy of the CD in my hand and said, here, I'm giving you this. I bought a few other CDs, mind you, but he gave me this because I he remember said, that. this is fantastic. You really need to listen to this band. And on the way home, I looked up on YouTube one of their songs called Get Drunk, Play Records. Yeah, I remember you coming home pretty excited to uh, show off your new find. Oh man, what a fantastic 
band they are, they need to be big. And probably if they'd been around in the 70s, they would have been huge. But they only have, to the best of my knowledge, just the one album out. It's just called RX. And I love that album to bits. But this song City of Thieves is not a long way off from anything on that album. It's just another terrific 60s era guitar style melodic rock song. Sounds probably, I'd compare it to pre-Tommy era Who. If you like that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff, then you'd really be digging loose pills. And the third song from an act that I knew is uh, from Chuck Jenkins and the Zhivagos. Of course. Good friend Chuck. If you'd been following the Love It album page this year, you'd know how excited I got knowing that the ice cream hands have reformed. I mean, I think they said at the time that they never really split. They were just going on hiatus and this year I think was the 20th anniversary oh sorry 2019 I should say was the 20th anniversary of probably their most well known album Sweeter Than The Radio but this was from the band that he formed post Ice Cream Hands called The Zhivagos Guys like was originally meant from an album which I really loved called Too Much Water in the Boat but was left off. That album came out in 2016 because he just had too many great songs and the song is called Horatio Hornblower a very uh, literary reference to that. The song I should say it's just a lovely slice of old worldly sounds. It basically has Hunters and Collectors own Hornblower Jack Howard and there's some uh, harmonies which the Zhivagos weren't usually known for their harmonies. That was more Ice Cream Hands domain. But in true Ice Cream Hands fashion, the harmonies are brought on by Ice Cream Hands bassist Doug Robinson. Beautiful, beautiful song, Horatio Hornblower. So those are three songs I wanted to sort of, just to give you an idea of what the Shaky Pop Boomerang compilation is about and I'll just quickly refer to another couple of songs from bands I wasn't familiar with one is from a band called Blackbirds FC a white moon appears like a hole in the sky mangroves go quiet in the Brisbane Della Palma a teenage rescue takes a sting from a gym which I believe rehearse very, very close to where we live. And the name of the song is called Bye Bye Pride. And just suffice to say that this sort of reminded me of the go-betweens. And then I discovered that, well, it was a go-between song. They have a terrific album that came out this year, or I should say last year, called Field Recordings. And the music sounds a bit like a cross between the go-betweens and the Triffids in a less produced way. Just a beautiful arrangement in their hands. And the last song I want to bring to your attention from the Shake Your Pop Boomerang album is one from a band called The Lyrebirds. The song's called Blue Flower. This is another cover, but this originally was from a band in 1972 called Slap Happy, which was a really nice slice of piano pop. And apparently there's a version that came out 
which was a little bit more fuzzed out guitar from Mazzy Star. Oh, yeah. So uh, bringing things up a little bit more contemporary. But the production on the Lyrebirds version, it sounds like a great Phil Spector production if he'd been producing stuff in the 80s. There's plenty of that instrumental and vocal wall of sound. The two members of Lyrebirds are Jess Owen and Angus Bell. Jess's vocal has a really beautiful ghost-like ethereal sound about it. And it's a favourite cut from this album. But there's something like, I don't know, 40 songs on this double album. I've just given you a bit of a description and you've heard a little bit from five of these songs. So if you want to go search that out, I wholeheartedly recommend that you do. Yes, I am friends with Scott Thurling, but I'm putting this here out because he puts out great albums and he deserves your support. So some of the listeners out there may have already even gone and invested in a copy of the CD. So the rest of you, just look up Pop Boomerang. I think they have a band camp site and you can either order the physical media or order a download and just tell them that we sent you here at uh, Love That Album. That's probably the longest I'll speak about any of these albums. So, sure. Max, your second pick. My second pick goes to um, the album I Want to Be There by Sadness. Okay, so Sadness, I believe they're a uh, one-person project, and it sort of deals in some of the most forlorn and plaintive sounds I think I've heard in music in recent years. It does that by sort of stringing depressive black metal, shoegaze, post-rock elements, a synthwave, even a bit of scrams in there, just to name a few. And given the uh, very large volume of releases from sadness there have been upwards of 23 albums splits and eps since 2014 wow these guys could give king gizzard a run for their money oh absolutely it's very impressive but like given the very large uh, volume of releases sadness has really managed to hone in on this particularly idiosyncratic approach to the uh, Black Ace formula that makes fantastic use of the existing tropes of massively dense, dreamy, repetitious atmospheres, but it adds on top of that this very tasteful but also very haunting and memorable uh, use of synthesizers, you know, some really unique guitar work and these magnificent sections of what sort of sounds like a children's Choir singing in unison, often straining to come through the mix. It's its own thing. It's also worth mentioning that, like Shingard, I Want to Be There is one of two full albums, I should say, released by Sadness in 2019. There was a split and, and an appearance on a compilation, I believe, as well. But the other main album, Circle of Veins, is also, it's a phenomenal album in its own right, and I was really torn between which one to choose. In fact, Circle of Veins is arguably even broader in its sonic explorations than I Want to Be There, but I think I Want to Be There only just edged it out, and like I emphasize, only just by a hair, because I think it was slightly more memorable in its songwriting, and it had a marginally uh, lusher and more powerful feel to the whole thing. So you're saying this is like a one-man project, right? Uh, yes. 
how many instruments does he play or does he get other occasional guests? I really couldn't tell you. I believe everything is performed by this one guy. So what's the sonic palette he's working with? There's a drums, guitar, bass and synthesizers, which you'll hear for the bulk of the music. I think the music is painted by how these instruments are treated, how they're made to sound. Among the larger sort of floods of sounds that make up the bulk of the album, it introduces some really pretty, more sparse sections, like a Midwest emo-sounding guitar intro slash outro of the track I Want to Be With You, or the uh, cold, isolated... It almost reminded me of the soundtrack to the Silent Hill games, the synth atmospheres in the following track, Moments, which, like, on most albums you'd call this a filler track, but I still think that it has some of the most interesting textures on the whole album and it's wholly engrossing and it doesn't feel like filler at all. I think overall the uh, music through its lush ambience and textures, it's perfectly designed to get lost in and meditate through your own yearnings or nostalgia or pathos or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly designed for you to just get lost in this sprawling, somber atmosphere that makes up this album and it does that so perfectly fantastic and this is also available Bandcamp yep it is on um, streaming services it's on Bandcamp and you can get it physically as well absolutely support the artist Mm. so was this a write your music discovery or actually no my friend Harry put me onto them thanks Harry Okay, we'll go to my second pick. Now, this is a band that I know that you like as well. This is the second album from uh, the Claypool Lennon Delirium, South of Reality. Of course. saw the second release from the Claypool Lennon Delirium and it's a head-scratching thing for me that I sort of hadn't actually listened to their music before. I'd listened to a little bit of Sean Lennon years ago with a really wonderful album. It might have even been his debut called Into the Sun but I hadn't really heard much else of his and apart from Sailing the Seas of Cheese which you got me to listen to and appreciate I sort of hadn't really paid that much to Les Claypool, although... You'd watch South Park. I'd watch South Park, yes, South Park. And it's also uh, Primus playing on the terrific Tom Waits track, Big in Japan. Yep. It's a bit unusual that I sort of hadn't really gone to Claypool Lennon Delirium before South of Reality, but there was a lot of fuss when it came out. It might have been, I don't know, April, May, June of 
2019. I thought, all right, time for me to delve in. The album nominally has been classified in the reviews, I guess, as psychedelic. And yeah, it's certainly true. And it could easily have fitted in on the King Gizzard label Flightless. It sort of has a little bit of a feel to me of float along, fill your lungs. But there's other things that are going on here rather than just straight out psychedelia. It's not psychedelia pastiche a la, say, you know, the Dukes of Stratosphere. It's a fun album, but it's also its own thing. I always find it melodically interesting and despite having two incredible musicians, the songs always feel rooted in pop composition rather than just show-offy musicianship. I don't imagine Sean ever tried to shake the fact musically that he was the son of a beetle. I mean, I know he's probably sick and tired to some extent always having to be compared, but musically I think he's taking some of the better elements of his dad in possibly ways that maybe Julian Lennon didn't. Julian was sort of more out and out straight pop and ballads and sounds like Sean is going a little bit more in the psychedelic and experimental rock sort of phase. There's a song on here called Blood and Rockets which embraces to my mind a white album era John Lennon as a composition and performance. I'd even say that Les Claypool's bass in this song has a very McCartney-esque feel for the melody. I'm not sure who does the bulk of the drumming on this album. I know that Claypool is worshipped as a bassist and Lennon, I heard in an interview that he did on Mark Maron's WTF podcast, has worked long and hard to get his guitar chops up. But I always admire listening to drummers who are not their first instrument drum kits I always find that there's a really interesting approach so regardless of whether it's Les or Sean on this album that's playing it they're doing a really really great job I I imagine it's probably Les but could be wrong there are some great harmonies on the album there's a song called Bariska which is a song I almost would have loved to have heard Elliot Smith cover if he was still around it just seems to lend itself to that where it has this complex vocal harmony arrangement and beautiful counter vocal responses that don't sound complex if you're just listening to it casually, but you just know that a lot of work has been put into it. And there's a beautiful middle section of the song that sounds to me like King Crimson was an influence. Claypool's bass at the pre-verse intro sounds almost menacing, but that's just part of the sound that he likes to paint with. And I I just really, really love this song. But one of my favorite songs on the record, though, is a thing called The Cricket Chronicles, which is, I guess, a little bit like a suite. It sounds like a great psychedelic jam with Eastern music scale, feel, and once again, there's like this gorgeous multi-layered harmonies in the chorus, which advise you to ask your doctor. You'll know what I mean when you get to listen to this. And one band I never sort of thought I'd be comparing them to, but on this song they do, is The Tubes. Because there's a section towards the end of the song, I'm really wondering if they'd listen to The Tubes' song, What Do You Want From Life? So Heather Drain, if you're out there listening to this, I'd be checking this tune out, The Cricket Chronicles, because at the end of the Ask Your Doctor section of the song, they list side effects, P-S-Y-D-E, side effects, which uh, your allergy to things in life like dusty nipples, lobster legs, a desire to river dance and listen to Dexy's Midnight Runners and excessive armpit flatulence. Very much. 
I think, in the line of what do you want from life by the tubes. But look, overall, this is a great album. It, I listened to it quite a fair bit in the middle of the year. I don't know whether I'd say you probably need to have a devotion to psychedelia to completely appreciate it. Maybe you do. But there's a lot of great pop harmonies on this, which you don't necessarily normally associate with psychedelia. I'd definitely be recommending to uh, go out there and give this one a listen. Definitely one of my highlights of 2019. Was this one that you sort of gave much of a listen to? I did give a couple of listens around the middle of the year, and I do remember quite enjoying it. I don't know why I didn't really come back to it. I was just sort of bogged down in all this other music that I was listening to. Hundreds of albums, too little time. All right, well, anyway, what we'll do at this stage, I think we'll go for another break, maybe play a promo for another podcast. That's what we're here for, to uh, share the love of other podcasts. And also just want to give another quick shout out to the wonderful folk at uh, Pantheon Podcast. Thank you very much for taking love that album on they've got a ton of great podcasts i think as i'm talking there are about 30 different podcasts that are out there all right anyway as i said we're going to go to a quick break and then max and i will be back to talk about another couple of albums each that we really dug in 2019 and maybe do some honorable mentions as well you're listening to love that album episode 130 Hey, this is Scott of Married with Clickers. Tune in to hear my wife Kat and me discuss all sorts of movies. We'll cover everything from The Lost Weekend to Weekend at Bernie's. From The Big Sleep to Big Mama's House. Well, maybe not Big Mama's House. And the great thing about Kat is that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And would you be surprised to hear he was nominated for Best Actor that year? For that film? For that film. But don't take my word for it. Just listen to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has to say about our show. It's a husband and wife show, and they discuss movies and stuff. Yeah, a very wife-husband show. High praise indeed. So come find us at marriedwithclickers.libson.com. It will save your life. Or maybe just help you kill an hour. And we're back from break. Morris here, Max over there. We're talking about albums that we dug from 2019. Just a small selection because we dug a whole lot more than what we're talking about. But we're limiting ourselves to four albums each in some detail and maybe a few honourable mentions at the end. So, Max, your third album you wish to recommend to the listeners. Yep. Okay. So, this is one I uh, did show you fairly recently. The album is called Four of Arrows by the Seattle band Great Grand.
this album is opposed to their uh, 2017 debut called Plastic Cough. It was a fairly fun garage pop slash rock outing. They've taken a decidedly more emotionally heavy turn with Four of Arrows. And on top of that, I think the songwriting has had a noticeable uptick in quality and variety of influences. Now, yes, you did play this to me, and like my first impression was, oh yeah, I've heard this sort of thing before, but I think after another full listen that we had the other day, mm. I'm now really a fan of their songwriting. I mean, musicianship was never in question, and the melodies were quite pretty, but I think this is an album of really wonderful substance. I'm loving it. I, I was privileged to have heard it for the first time with a pair of good headphones on, and just be able to really immerse myself in the songs. That's the way to listen to an album like this. Uh, With the distance that just sort of having it on in the background provides, you can make a bunch of tentative sort of connections to stuff you've already heard. But I do think if you really listen to this album, there's a lot in there that feels very fresh. There's the same sort of indie rock bass that was there initially in in Plastic Cough, but now it's got these interesting flourishes of alternative country, Midwest emo, folk, even ragtime ballads. These massive, you know, sort of post-rock sounding guitars in part. This isn't an album that you can get easily bored with or predict exactly where it's going to go next. It's got a variety of influences which it brings in and it sews them together really seamlessly. I think apart from the really fantastic songwriting on this album, the lead vocalist Alex Men's vocals are a really key component that distinguishes Great Grandpa from their peers. She's got a beautiful voice. She does have a beautiful voice and on top of having this beautiful voice you'll notice it throughout a number of tracks on the album. She has this habit of pushing from chest to head voice quickly giving an almost sort of like yelped effect to Mm. some of the melodies which the only other place where I've heard something like that is in uh, yodeling music. (laughs) This is is not yodeling, don't, don't get me wrong. This doesn't sound like the music you'd associate with yodeling. This isn't fun German folk tunes but she just incorporates that pushing from chest head voice in a way that makes the vocal melodies really pop and I think the strength of the songwriting is very evident in its ability to switch seamlessly from these understated pathos filled melodies to these almost anthemic choruses that will get stuck in your head for days and it's Fantastic, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I, I look forward to uh, giving this more of a listen because uh, the couple of listens which I've had of the whole album have just been fairly casual, but I just knew that there was something special on that second play. This is something I think I'll be uh, immersing myself in over the coming months. It's definitely one to uh, a band to keep an eye out for. I'm looking very much forward to the, the uh, next release. Do they tour? Do you know if they play much? I'm pretty sure they do. Mm. I'm not sure if they've ever been here. Right. We'll have, well, we'll have to uh, click like on the Facebook page and keep abreast of their travelling commitments. That'd be nice to see them down here playing. That'd be cool. That's why you hate me like you My 
third release is, well, I'm an old fart and I like my physical media. And so this is an act which is purely band camp. But I absolutely fell in love with this maybe about August, September of 2019. I was on a Pat Metheny Facebook group and there was a lady by the name of Jun Izumi, Japanese lady living in New York City who had put a, a post to a link of a film clip that she'd made with her guitar-playing partner, Yuto Kanazawa. They'd gone and done a cover version of close to my favourite Pat Metheny tune called First Circle. say I've heard a number of covers of this and not all of them have done justice to it. It's an incredibly rich and complex tune. I mean, the, the time signature is, I don't know, was it 22-7 or something, something really weird. That alone is something in itself. But melodically, there's a lot going on and it's just absolutely beautiful. But Jun and Yuto had gone and made this little film clip of them playing it in Central Park in New York City and she got to put this link in the uh, Pat Metheny page group saying I'd be honoured if you gave this a listen so I thought alright well let's see what they do with it and I think I played it five times in a row and it's a nine minute tune wow. so the best part of an hour was spent with me just listening over and over again as to how Yuto encompassed all the crucial elements of the melody and the original band arrangement in his guitar playing and the original version of the Pat Metheny group of this tune actually had wordless vocals. Of course, now that we're recording, I can't remember the name of the singer in that era because he's gone through a lot of wordless vocalists in his group. But the original singer had done a terrific job. But uh, Jun Izumi, her vocals are just ethereal, just heavenly, absolutely beautiful. They did so much complete justice. So I thought, right, well, I've got to see, have these two actually recorded anything more? And it turns out they had recorded an EP, which was available on Band camp called No Day But Today. So there's not much information about the two of them. Both are trained at jazz conservatories. I think Jun in piano and presumably in voice and Yuto in uh, guitar. I read that uh, Yuto is also a graduate of Berkeley, but really hard to find much else about Jun except to say that there's an, a Japanese actress of the same name, but not the same person. Yuto's guitar approach sounds more to me like that of a classical guitarist. I mean, he, he's playing a gut-strung guitar on this, so that would have something to do with it, but he very much has a classical guitar approach to my ears. Like a classical guitarist playing jazz, there's a couple of tunes on this, Frevo and Spain, and Spain is the famous Chick Corea tune, which incorporates elements of uh, Rodrigo's Concerto de la Anjuez, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But you'll recognize it when you listen to it. It's really beautiful and tasteful. And his guitar playing is skillful, but never showy for its own sake. Jun's vocals vary on the EP from the wordless. So like as in first circle cover. And so her voice is more like an instrument rather than her being as a singer. But there's the more conventional vocals that we hear on Spain and also on their version of My Favourite Things. Mm. 
cream colored ponies and cream sapling students, doorbells, sleigh bells, snipped with noodles, white kids that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Which has a bit of a dark turn to it. So if you're not a fan of the sound of music, don't worry. Just listen to this and be drawn into it. If you like John Coltrane's version, it's very different to that too. But this ethereal beauty in its darkness, I really, really love it. It's all standards? No, well, it's. It, I don't think that there's anything original composition-wise, but their approach to these tunes, they make it theirs. You, you wouldn't just listen to this and think, oh yeah, another jazz duo or another jazz ensemble doing traditional covers. Uh, they're not all traditional covers. Chick Corea and Pat Metheny are more, they're still working musicians. I'm not sure, but they're probably not in the real book or anything like that. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. But these two musicians' approach is just absolutely gorgeous. And if you like the sound of gut-strung guitar rather than necessarily the electric guitar stylings of, say, Wes Montgomery, as marvellous as that is, but this is something different. Mm -hmm. So just listen to these two, search them out. Their album's on Bandcamp. I went and bought a copy of the EP on Flack, so I can probably burn it to a CD to listen to it my old fart way. At the very least, go onto YouTube and search out for Junizumi and Yuto Kanazawa and their version of First Circle and just put on a pair of headphones or play it through nice speakers and just close your eyes and listen to this. I swear, I don't think I've heard anything more beautiful last year. It just really cornered me in. I just absolutely loved it. And the name of the full EP, if you want to buy it off Bandcamp, is called No Day But Today. Okay, Max, your final pick. So this was kind of a hard album for me to listen to, not because it was too heavy, it was a heavy album, but it deals with some very real threats, the very real threat of complete environmental catastrophe and a number of related issues in a very despondent sort of way, which made it sort of, I had to be in the right headspace to listen to it. It's, of course, Death Atlas by Cattle Decapitation. at home can't see it, uh, repping one of their shirts as we speak. And you're seeing them next month. I am seeing them next month. Very excited. This will be my second time seeing them live. They're a band who I have a very personal history with. I listened to the Monolith of Inhumanity as probably one of the first extreme metal albums that I really started obsessing over back in 2013, 2014. And that's still one of my all-time favorite albums. About Death Atlas, if there are a way to describe the overall tone of this album, I think the best word I could use would be grim. It's a very grim album. And this is an album that crystallizes the band's approach towards a simultaneously sort of tough-as-nails, yet 
very theatrical approach to death metal, which they've sort of been building up to in their last four albums since The Harvest Floor. And it builds towards a coherently brutal but still really melodic commentary. It works almost as a narration to the end times, Hmm. speaking to, you know, the greed, pig-headed idiocy and conmanship that led to this sore state of affairs that we sort of find ourselves facing every day. They're going to have a lot to say on this Australian tour. Oh, no doubt, no doubt in my mind. Interspersed between the course of the album are these ambient compositions built on doomy, minimal synth work and incorporating samples from news reports on environmental catastrophe in a number of different languages. These interludes, they really help set up and maintain this very dour, as I said, grim uh, mood over the album's runtime, and they feed into the heavier, thrashier tracks that build up the bulk of this album. You couldn't talk about contemporary cattle decapitation without talking about Travis Ryan's fantastic, wholly unique vocal stylings on songs like Bring Back the Plague. They combine the intricate song structures with a really dynamic vocal performance from Travis, heavily incorporating his now signature, I've heard people refer to it as goblin singing style, as well as these very beastly growls, which I think, quite honestly, he's in top form on this record. As as far as all that goes, the album... It's very tightly produced, but it still has that massive, attacking, heavy, oppressive atmosphere that you'd normally expect from a more lo-fi death metal band. Mm -hmm. I pretty much reserved a spot for this album as soon as I heard it was released on my albums of the year, and they didn't disappoint. Mm. This, in combination with their last three or four albums, are going to be looked at as hallmarks of the genre in years to come. So have they progressed musically, or maybe progress is the wrong word, but have they changed musically? I mean, keeping their root in aggressive yeah, well, sounds good. I think this album is sort of, it's a crystallization of everything they've been working up to since The Harvest Floor. It's got all their usual technical riffs and fast tremolo-picked riffs. It's added in a bit more of a black metal bent into the sound. If you look at everything they've been doing since The Harvest Floor, you can see this is what they were aiming to achieve, and they've really nailed it. This acts like a, um, a concept album in a lot of ways, and it has the cohesion of all the best concept albums, and it builds on top of all the goodwill that they've built up over the years into something that really feels like this is the dictionary definition of what kettle decapitation is. This is what their sound is about. So it'll be interesting to see what they do next then if everything's been leading to this. Do they wonder if next if they change up styles or it it can just even get more perfect for you? Only time will tell, but I do have a lot of faith in them. Mm. They've put out nothing but uh, fantastic material in the uh, 2010s so I'm looking forward to what the uh, new decade will bring.
So time for my final pick, and this is an artist who you and I went to see maybe about two or three years ago out at the Corner Hotel in Richmond. I'm talking about the great Michael Kiwanuka, mm-hmm. and he released a self-titled album, well, just called Kiwanuka, as it turns out, on my birthday in uh, 2019. So that was a nice birthday present. What makes you blind? I hope to find who I believe in. Get back in line, I can't deny myself, show me the feeling Oh, you got me wrong, if you don't belong, live in the trouble Don't hesitate Time heals the pain, you ain't the problem I live the lie, love is the crime, you Big shout out to listener Paul Hughes a member of the uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema community for making me aware that this album existed. I had no idea that this was even coming out, so I was very excited to get a copy of it when uh, it eventually did come out. This is Michael's third album, which is similar but different enough to the previous records to really keep it interesting. I discussed the first album, Home Again, on the podcast with Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema host Will Smith, and we both absolutely loved that and it sort of agreed that it was a early 70s style songwriters album with touches of maybe smile era or pet sounds era brian wilson in the production style and arrangements you even get like uh, sleigh bells on some of the songs and you can definitely tell what he's going for never mind about the production effects and the, the little instrumental touches this was definitely substance over style no matter which way you spun it now max you and i went and saw him on the tour for the second album love and hate that's right and the songs on that album sort of went more to a bit of a 70s funk soul feel but was still really really hugely strong and was uh, his commentary on the state of the world and that album as this new album was produced by modest mouse but yeah. the production style on these two albums are quite different to my ears this new album it does have a few modern touches but when you sort of open up the album with a track called you ain't the problem it really strongly to my ears sounds like we're listening to a classic Temptations song sure. from the 60s era of the Temptations. Very strong Motown feel and yep, just beautiful example of songwriting and arranging. It feels almost like a, you know, admittedly probably more limited uh, listens than you, but in, in the listens I've had to this album, it sounds like, because obviously Kiwanuka is a very, quite a politically active artist and socially conscious artist who's taken a lot of inspiration from the soul and R&B of the 60s, not just in their style, but in their lyrical and vocal approach towards politics. Politics. I think, look, his politics on this album, they're more personal. I mean, he, yes, it's its there. I mean, you've got songs on this album like Living in Denial and Final Days. This is not overall a happy album, although musically there are some up-tempo moments, which I guess, you know, if you're not paying attention to the lyrics, could fool you that it's reasonably happy. But really, this is lyrically... It's an album where, like what you were discussing earlier, an album that is looking at the state of the world, but not at a macro level. He's not going and saying, fuck you, Donald Trump. Fuck you, any other political leaders who've gone and made the world a dangerous place to live. This is just more his personal take on how people interact with each other as a result of the state of the world that we live in. I know that sounds very, very broad. I just want to say that besides being compositionally strong, the 
sound of the album is beautifully lo-fi. And if you'd have gone and told me that this album was recorded in the late 60s, early 70s, I'd have believed it. But it's not retro for the sake of being retro. The album still does sound fresh while dipping its hand at the stars that he obviously grew up loving. There's a song on the album called Piano Joint, this kind of love, which is heartbreakingly beautiful. Walking down the avenue Looking out for something new It's the right time And it has sort of an Isaac Hayes feel to me. That's the other thing this album does have tasteful orchestral backing, so it's not just the band, but the arrangements aren't lush and overflowing. This is not Mantovani. This is just tasteful additional orchestration giving the songs what they need and this song piano joint has this very reflective moment and i love it when songwriters get cinematic and the music in this song sounds like it could have belonged in a great 70s crime film like the friends of eddie coyle or the francis ford coppola film the conversation but there's a lot on this album that does have some of that classic soul feel with as i said the modern touches that modest mouse bring to it it's never nostalgia for its own sake you know max that i'm a big fan of some of the local soul bands like cactus channel or jazz party or the bamboos and i I should also just make a quick mention i forgot to write this down in my uh list of honorary mentions but another great album that came out this year was from local band the bamboos called by special arrangement and that's basically them doing some of their great songs with guest vocalists and orchestral arrangements which you'd think on the surface why would they need to do that but as soon as you listen to the album you get why they needed to do it It was just beautiful tasteful arrangement so i bring that link to this michael kiwanuka album where string section arrangements can, if done right, bring something beautiful and tasteful to these sure. to these great songs. But yeah, the Michael Kiwanuka album, it, it all sounds vibrant and fresh to my ears. I believe that it's done reasonably well in, um, in the popular domain. I'm not paying much attention. I'm just like, oh, this is a good album. I'll listen to this. But good to hear that it's had some chart action, so lots of people getting into it. And if you haven't heard it, I'd really recommend Kiwanuka. And then go back to the first couple of Michael Kiwanuka Robs. Just absolutely beautiful. And Home Again, the year that that came out, I think I might have forgotten to take that CD out of the CD player. I was playing that over and over and over again, possibly making people a little bit sick of it. But he's a songwriter who, at this stage, if it's got his name on the album cover, I'm buying it. I don't think he could possibly disappoint me. Stay with me, don't let me go. Those are our four recommendations that we want to discuss in detail, but we have a few honourable mentions. So, Max, what are your honourable mentions that you want to go through? I've got six of them here. I'll just shoot through them real quick. i got Fluoride Disentanglements, the name of the record. This is just a, it's no frills beyond intense grindcore with a fantastic sense of dissonance and variety in it. Then there's I'm Losing Myself by An Isolated Mind. (laughs) 
Honestly, this album probably would have made the list if I'd heard it earlier in the year. It's a manic and discordant, yet still very emotionally charged slab of black and death metal. Uh, next, f- from our home country, The Decaying Light by Disentomb. <laughs> suffocating and doom-ridden brutal death metal. It's technical, punishing, and really cavernous sounding with a level of atmosphere that not very many other brutal death metal bands have. The Origin of My Depression by Uboa. artist who I've seen many times. Ubo is a, a Melbourne local woman who makes this fantastic noise art. This is a particularly taxing listen, stringing together these lo-fi recordings, ominous samplings, and these occasional outbursts of frenzied noise. The album just comes together to create something that hits very hard emotionally. Then there's Love Exchange Failure by White Ward. thoroughly enrapturing mix of dark CD jazz with atmospheric black metal in a wholly unique way. The way I'd describe it to a friend would be, it takes atmospheric black metal out of the Norwegian forests and into a seedy mid-city alley outside a jazz lounge. Mm. And the final one is Everywhere at the End of Time 6 by The Caretaker... This is a fitting but ultimately heartbreaking end to the Everywhere at the End of Time series, what started as a musical equivalent of early-stage dementia through remixed ballroom jazz samples with small moments of static and confusion reaches its bitter and inevitable end in stage six. We've got a lot of uh, End of Times stuff recommendations here that's her music yeah. tastes are really uh, reflecting what's going on. Armchair psychologists, make of this what you will. <laughs> yes, uh, we'll be charging you by the minute for this consultation, listeners. All right, so I've only got three honourable mentions I want to talk about. I probably could have made a whole lot more, but I just basically sort of scrambled a few things together, realising that Max was going to put together some honourable mentions. So I thought, yes, I guess I better do the same. So the first one is, and I won't go into much detail, it's already been spoken about in episode 129, which had Ian McFarlane and Jeff Jenkins, the Dyson Stringer Cloa album, self-titled. But if you want to be This is something of a super group. They basically went off to the Wilco Loft in Chicago to record this. Uh, They produced it, but uh, Glenn Kochi, the drummer of Wilco, was drummer for this album. So this album is just chock full of really, really great indie pop and some strong harmonies. Second thing I want to talk about is an album which I don't think I remember seeing appear on many end-of-year lists, but it was well-loved when it came out, I think about April or May of 2019. It's the album The Wisdom Line by David Bridey. Surround the harbor 
the 80s I was a huge fan or became a huge fan of Not Drowning Waving and then that followed into my friend The Chocolate Cake, their side project, which became the main project as Not Drowning Waving said bye-bye musically. David Bright has produced a few solo albums over the years, but this is the one that certainly appeals to me the most. He's always written songs either about suburbia but not in a snotty sort of hey isn't it boring living in the suburbs but he does make social commentary but you know the suburbs and i think he grew up in thornbury in melbourne and he just writes about what he knows and what he observes and he also writes a lot about his love of papua new guinea and has worked with telek on um, not drowning waving albums it's really beautiful it's minimalist in that brighty sort of way but i don't know if the, the term minimalist doesn't turn you on don't let that turn you off Listen Listening to this is yeah, melodically haunting and uh, some really, really great songwriting on this album. So welcome back, David Bridie. And final thing I wanted to bring up, this is the only collection. It got released, I think, in 2019, but it's old, uh, old set of recordings. This is from Bert Janch. Anyone who knows me knows of my love of uh, his guitar playing. I've been a fan since, I don't know, maybe I was six or seven when my sister went and brought home an album from then supergroup Pentangle and he and John Renborn, who were already friends. In this group, they combine jazz and folk and blues in a really unique way. We often hear about bands saying that, oh yeah, we, we combine jazz and folk and blues and you think, no, that's just folk music with maybe throwing a couple of jazz chops, but no, but this really does combine all those elements in Pentangle. But Bert Janch had already had something of a career and released quite a few albums either by himself or with uh, John Renborn. So there's a series of releases both on CD and on record of uh, his back catalogue all being remastered. And I think it's like four albums at a time. I bought the CD version of this first collection called A Man I'd Rather Be Part One. And it features Bert's self-titled album, I think it might be his debut, an album called It Don't Bother Me, Jack Orion, and a collaboration that he did with John Renborn called Bert and John. I just love his guitar styling. There's no one who plays like it. I know that Neil Young and apparently Jimmy Page were both quoted as being huge fans of his guitar playing. I got to see him, I think, in the noughts at the long-lamented Continental Cafe here in Melbourne. No one could take their eyes off him. He was never a flashy player, but just there were things that he did that no one else could do. He had an imagination and just a really completely unique guitar styling. So these albums and his his singing style, no one sounded like him. Once again, not flashy. He was just more of a, I don't know how you'd put it. I don't want to say, say lazy because that would give the wrong impression, but a very relaxed style of vocal that just, yeah, once again, no one did. Anyway, A Man I'd Rather Be Part 1 is the four CD set that I got but there's about three or four other four CD sets which collecting and remastering his uh, back catalogue. And it is huge. I can't say for sure, but I'd say there'd be at least 30 or 40 albums that he released in his life. I'd recommend if you're a, a fan of English folk of the 60s, then um, go search anything out by Bert Yarnch. So there you go. Those are my honourable mentions. I just want to say thanks again to uh, Max for being a part of this. And it's always fun to record with you hopefully we'll do another one soon absolutely so people out there if you've enjoyed the show 
please go back through the uh, archives, listen to some of the older ones. Hopefully you'll find some more stuff that we speak about that for you uh, to enjoy. Please go through the Pantheon podcast archives. Some great shows on there, as I've mentioned already. And look after yourselves. You know, the been mentioning the last few months at the end of the show the world's going a little bit to pot so please do something nice for someone you love tell them you love them i look forward to your company please reach out if you want to let me know if there's an album that you'd like me to cover on the show or indeed if you want to join me to come on the show let's talk about an album i'm always open to new presenters and until we speak again look after yourselves all the best cheers cheerio It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.